This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Um, when I've talked about this topic, and I will take the position with Thomas that uh, human beings do not survive death, though they rise again. Okay. Um, what that means, and this can be kind of shocking and challenging to people sometimes, um, and it's kind of gotten sometimes a little bit emotional in class, for instance, when I go through this. What that means is grandma is not in heaven. Um, my parents, both of whom are dead, one of whom died when I was 21, until the resurrection is not in heaven, is not in heaven until the resurrection. So I just want to put that out there um, off the bat so that in the language we now have, nobody's triggered. Um, but I think Thomas's position that I'll talk about here is very important for the life of the church and actually is, Im is in fact the position of the church because of what it says about the resurrection. But of course what it says about the resurrection is something that it says about the incarnation, the passion, and the resurrection of Christ. And so I think um, that's what we want to have uh, before us in terms of talking about this somewhat challenging teaching. All right. So regular, and I, I did too much here, so I'll probably chop as I go. Regular attendees of the Summer Thomistic Institute will know that I have on a number of occasions used very imaginative scenarios in my talks that involve the brutal killing of magnificent Father Thomas Joseph White, now the Rector Magnificus of the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, otherwise known as the Angelicum, as well as our more mundane host, Father Dominic Legg. <laughs> Things like decapitating them with a rusty saw or having them torn limb from limb by a ferocious grizzly bear. In any case, I've been tasked this time to speak about survivalism, the position that human beings don't die, indeed cannot die. If survivalism is true, then not only have my fantasies of the brutal slaying of the magnificent Father Thomas Joseph White and the mundane Father Dominic Legg been merely passing fantasies, they've also been deluded fantasies of the impossible. Since I would prefer that fantasies please me rather than delude me, I will argue here that survivalism is false. I intend to do survivalism to death. Describing death in the disputed question on the soul, Aquinas uses the Latin term interitus, meaning, among other things, ruin, destruction, and extinction. That's hard to argue with. When a living being dies, it is brought to ruin, destruction, and extinction. It ceases to exist. To put the ceasing to exist, that is death, in an Aristotelian frame, living corporeal substances are identical to hylomorphic compositions of body and soul. <clears throat> For the most part, they come to exist through processes of generation through which a substantial form is educed or led out of the potentialities of matter by a generator or generators acting upon the matter. An individual living corporeal substance is the term of such a process. It exists as living when the substantial form is the actuality of the matter. 
Generation is the label given to the process of coming to be of such a substance. The substance that result is said to have been generated. Such living corporeal substances are subject to death through the corruption of their substantial unity. Not so much the separation of soul from body, but the dissolution of the substance, its destruction, ruin, or extinction, with the dissolution of the soul as the substantial form informing the body, along with the consequent dissolution of the living body corrupting to dust. Corruption is the process of ceasing to be of such a substance. Just as, strictly speaking, it is the living corporeal substance that is generated, so also, strictly speaking, it is the living corporeal substance that corrupts and dies, is brought to ruin, destroyed, become extinct. For the most part, soul and, for the most part, soul and body are generated with the living substance as its substantial for, sorry, as its substantial principles, and as its substantial principles corrupt with the substance. I say for the most part, because as we will see, there's a twist on this account in the case of a human being. The corruption, the dissolution of the substance, the composite of soul and body, is brought about by destructive natural causes acting within or upon the living body. Living corporeal substances themselves have various capacities to preserve themselves in existence against the ravages of the natural world around and within them. That is, in part, what it is for them to live, to sustain their existence in and through their own natural activities and organic processes. External causes can also assist a living substance in sustaining its life. Yet nature is a cruel mistress. And she teaches us that corruptible things inevitably corrupt. They are dust, and unto dust they return, death and taxes. It's important to note that while the death of a living corporeal substance is not, a, is not brought about by its specific nature, after all, the specific nature of a corporeal substance is the intrinsic principle that drives the substance to act to sustain its specific form of life through various activities and organic processes. Nonetheless, it is because the living corporeal substance is a hylomorphic composite of soul and body and has a corporeal nature that it is subject to death. If it were not by nature a hylomorphic composite, it would not be subject to the corruption of such a composite. So, one can say of living corporeal substances that it is natural for them to die, even if it is according to their natures that they live and move and have their being. We'll just posit here that it is within the inf infinite power of God to cause any living corporeal substance never to die, despite its being natural for living corporeal substances to die. In that respect, living corporeal substances are, through the power of God, potentially immortal, though not naturally immortal. What then is immortality? In general, to be immortal is to be living, 
and not subject to death. An immortal being is alive, but cannot die for some reason, cannot be destroyed, cannot be brought to ruin. But given what we just said, we can distinguish two ways in which some being may not be subject to death. In other words, two ways of being immortal. One way of being immortal would be to be naturally immortal. That is, one is naturally immortal because it is not natural for one to die. Such a living substance would not be a corporeal substance, but an incorporeal substance. Insofar as a living substance is not by nature a composite of soul and body, it is not subject to death by corruption. This immortality we will call natural immortality. God is naturally immortal because God is not a hylomorphic composite of soul and body. But also angels, paradigmatic incorporeal substances are not subject to death and are naturally immortal because angels are not hylomorphic composites of soul and body. That doesn't mean that angels can't cease to exist. It's just that they can't cease to exist through death. But as we've seen, living corporeal substances are naturally subject to death and are thus not naturally immortal. However, we've also posited that living corporeal substances are potentially immortal through the omnipotent power of God preserving them alive. So we can say that a second way of being immortal is being caused by God never to die. We'll call that supernatural immortality, actually being caused by God never to die, despite one's natural immortality. Just realized a little bit of a mistake in the way I phrased that, but hopefully you didn't notice. But then we can say of living corporeal substances that they are potentially supernaturally immortal, even if they will in fact die. It is of course part of Christian faith that Adam and Eve, along with all human beings, were potentially supernaturally immortal. Adam and Eve and all human beings through them were created in a state of original justice and preserved from death by the grace of God. However, Genesis says, the Lord, gave, the Lord God gave the man this order. You are free to eat from any of the trees of the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. From that tree you shall not eat. When you eat from it, you shall die. They and all human beings were and are by nature mortal, but potentially supernaturally immortal. The story is familiar, however, of how they and we lost the grace of original justice and became subject to natural death. They and we are dust, and unto dust we shall return. The next section is called The Life, Death, and Immortality of Mundane Father Dominic Legg. What of our mundane Father Dominic Legg? Father Dominic Legg is an animal, a living corporeal substance of the humankind. Aquinas is unambiguous about this fact, in though he doesn't mention Father Dominic. Um, he mentioned Socrates, but I thought a fitting substitute for Socrates. Aquinas is unambiguous about this fact in questions 75.4 and 76.1 of the first part of the Summa, as well as other parts. 
when he argues that a human being like Father Dominic Legg is not identical to his intellectual soul because of his animal acts. Surely Aquinas is right about mundane Father Dominic Legg not being identical to his soul. We won't argue against Aquinas on that point. If we did, I think we should just shut down this workshop and all future workshops, shut them down now and forever, which is my more forceful way of saying to Father Dominic, or what Father Dominic said earlier about in this setting, we're trying to understand ourselves as students, and I include myself here, students of Thomas. That's not to say he shouldn't be argued with, but on the other hand, there are certain fundamentals that we want to say, we're just going to hold on to those for now. In any case, the survivalists we are interested in do not reject that claim. They don't reject the claim that Father Dominic Legg is not identical to his soul. Indeed, their particular argument for the claim that human beings cannot die depends upon acknowledging that human beings are not souls. They are at pains to argue that not only does the individual who is a human being in this life not die, but also the individual now in hell, limbo, purgatory, or heaven, survives death precisely as a human being that, re that remains a human being, the very human being that once walked the earth, walking being an activity of an animal. So all agree that mundane Father Dominic Legg is an individual rational animal. As an individual corporeal substance, he's an animal whose specific animal acts are formally determined by reason under the command of will. This is a position that Aquinas maintains consistently and without waiver throughout his work, namely that an individual human being like Father Dominic Legg is an animal substance of the rational kind. That is, an individual corporeal substance within the category substance, the genus of substance that is animal and within the species of animal that is formally determined by the specific difference rational. Well, living corporeal substances die. I'm not going to argue that. That living corporeal substance die, substances die is as manifest as the motion with which Aquinas starts the first way. Not all have died. None of you, as of yet, have died. If you have a pet named Fluffy, I hope Fluffy hasn't died in your absence. But sure as the sun doth shine, Fluffy will die. Christian faith reports a few human beings on earth who don't seem to have died, but only by the supernatural power of God preserving them alive. But always, or for the most part, human beings die as surely as any other living corporeal substances do. If the latter is true, then human beings in general are not naturally immortal. Our only hope for immortality would seem to be through the omnipotent power of God preserving us from death despite being naturally subject to death. Evidently, and sadly, God does not do that for us after the sin of Adam and Eve. And frankly, I know it's a hard teaching, but he's not likely to do it for you. Remember you are dust, and unto dust you shall return. However, even if human beings like Father Dominic Legg are not naturally immortal, and God refrains from preserving them supernaturally immortal, human death, when it occurs, 
does not take place in exactly the same manner as the death of other animals, like dogs. It's still the case that the human animal, the individual substance hylomorphically composed of soul and body, is brought to ruin. But there is a difference. Allow me to, allow me to introduce the notion of a subsistent being. A subsistent being is a being that has an operation that is proper to it. As having an operation proper to it, it exists. However, it does not exist in anything, as in a subject. And Thomas gives an example of what he means by existing in something as in a subject, like an accident or a material form. Aquinas, uh, Aquinas explains. So a subsistent exists as having an operation proper to it, but does not exist in anything as in a subject. The hand is an example of a subsistent. It has an operation proper to it, namely grasping. An operation not proper to the eye, for example. But the eye has an operation proper to it as well, namely vision or seeing. However, both the hand and the eye are subsistence because they both exist, but they do not exist in anything as in a subject. They do exist in a living human body, a human being, but their existing in the human being is not as in a subject, like an accident or a material form. They exist in it as integral, subsisting parts of the human being. Now, Aquinas argues at length and in several places that the souls of human beings are subsistence. We heard this um, earlier. Because human beings have an operation that is not the actualization of a bodily organ, the operation of generalized thought, thinking, for instance, that all human beings are subject to death. Aquinas explicitly argues in question 76 of the first part of the Summa that generalized thought is the act of the individual human animal, the activity of Socrates or Father Dominic Legg. However, generalized thought not being an operation of a bodily organ, this operation must be an operation of the human animal in virtue of the human soul alone. The human animal grasps in virtue of her hand, a corporeal organ, which is part of the human being, a bodily part, while she thinks generalized thought in virtue of the soul alone, which is not a bodily part. However, the soul, like any substantial form, does not exist in anything as in a subject. It is the actuality of an individual substance being of a certain kind. So having an operation in virtue of which the human animal thinks generalized thought and not existing in anything as in a subject, the human soul is a subsistent. Now I'd like to point out something important about the corporeal organs that subvene corporeal activities, something important that is often overlooked in scholarly discussions of Aquinas that tend toward tunnel vision on the subsistence of the human soul. The corporeal organs that subvene corporeal operations are no less subsistent beings than is the human soul. However, being a subsistent is not sufficient 
for being a substance. The hand, the eye, the guts, all are subsistence, but none of them are substances. They are not substances because they do not have complete natures. A substance has a complete nature. It is not defined in relation to anything else. Organs, however, are functional parts of a substance. Insofar as one speaks of their natures, using nature of them by analogy, their natures are functionally defined in relation to the nature of the substance for which they are the functional parts. And it is equally true of the human soul that it does not have a complete nature. The fact that the human soul does not have a complete nature is not changed by the fact that it has an operation proper to itself rather than a bodily organ since it is proper to itself precisely as the substantial form of a human being, a human substance. So while the human soul is a subsistent, it is no more a substance than is the hand, the eye, the heart, or the guts of a human being. Like them, it is a subsistent part of the human substance. The corporeal organs are, however, corporeal subsistence and corrupt to dust in death through the death of the body. They are thus corruptible subsistence. The human soul is different in this because it is an immaterial form. And so Aquinas argues that since what belongs to a subsistent immaterial form is inseparable from it, the essay, which Father talked about today, or act of existence that belongs to the human soul cannot be separated from it. Thus, it does not corrupt as a corporeal substance corrupts. If it can cease to exist, it cannot do so through corruption. Notice, it is not because the human soul is a subsistent that it is incorruptible. It is because it is an immaterial subsistent form that it is incorruptible. By contrast, other animals that lack the capacity to think generalized thoughts do not have subsistent souls. Thus, the souls of other animals corrupt with the corruption of the living animal, just like all the other subsistent parts of the animal. But it remains the case that the human soul is not a substance. It is still defined in relation to the substance for which it is a substantial nature. It exists as the substantial form of X, where X is some individual human. And Aquinas argues that after the corruption of the corporeal substance, it has the essay or act of existence of the human substance which is now deceased, brought to ruin, destroyed, and, and extinct. Mundane Father Dominic Legg's soul continues to exist as Father Dominic's soul, even after Father Dominic Legg has died. For Aquinas is absolutely clear, the soul of a human being is not identical to the human being for which it is the soul. Anima mea non est ego. Aquinas writes in commenting on 1 Corinthians, Paul discussing the importance of the resurrection. This fact about the soul is one side of the coin as to why I qualified what I said above about generation and corruption of living corporeal substances as always or for the most part. And I'm just going to skip um, this paragraph, but it has to do with what Father uh, Dominic said 
this morning about the individual soul having to be created directly by God, not educed out of the matter, um, and uh, that soul therefore not corrupting with the body. Okay. So that's why it's always or for the most part. But it remains the case that the individual soul only comes to exist as directly created by God as the soul of this individual human being. It does not pre-exist. Thomas thinks it's impossible for it to pre-exist, and that's, of course, a doctrine of the faith. Augustine, um, and, and of course, it involves origin and so on. So mundane Father Dominic Legg's soul will continue on after his brutal death at my hands and retain its identity as mundane Father Dominic Legg's soul because it continues to exist in virtue of the essay that was mundane Father Dominic Legg's essay. But poor mundane Father Dominic Legg will be dead as a doornail, a pile of dust, dust in the wind. All he is, or rather will be, is dust in the wind. All his money won't another minute buy. Oh wait, he's a mendicant. He doesn't have any money. <laughs> but if he had some, it wouldn't another minute buy him. This section is called, I'm Not Dead Yet which fans of uh, Monty Python and the search for the Holy Grail will understand. But mightn't there be a possibility for personal immortality for dear mundane Father Dominic Legg, who in my fantasies appears to die, a possibility in virtue of the immortality of his soul alone that does not perish? Is it the case that the existence of the human soul of X alone is sufficient for the existence of X? If so, then it would seem to be because human beings unique among all the animals and despite all appearances to the contrary, do not, in fact, die. Indeed, if a human being co continues on after death because of the continued existence of the human being's soul, it follows not simply that a human being does not die, but as we've seen, that a human being cannot die. Since as we've seen, the human soul cannot corrupt. It would follow that rather than being naturally subject to death, human beings alone, among all the living corporeal substances that God created in the beginning, are naturally immortal. Death did not, indeed cannot, come into the world through sin. Because on this position, human beings do not, indeed cannot, die. So might our hope for immortality be in the corruptibility or sorry, in the incorruptibility of the soul? Aquinas' answer to this question is decidedly no. Human beings die. However, there are contemporary authors who think Aquinas' answer is yes, or should be. The position that human beings do not, indeed cannot die, is commonly called survivalism. The opposed position, which I hold, that human beings, and others do hold, by the way, I'm not alone in this, the opposed position that human beings can and do die is called corruptionism. The motivation for survivalism in the literature is plainly religious, the motivation for it. Based upon some texts of the Bible and some of the language of common Christian practice and piety. Scripture at times refers to various human beings now in heaven before the general resurrection of the body. Human beings, are pre human beings who previously lived on earth. Many Christians pray for the intercession of those in heaven according to the names of those who once lived on earth. Again, before the general resurrection. If you pray for the intercession of St. Thomas before an exam, 
mustn't St. Thomas exist in heaven as he no longer lives on earth. Justice in the form of punishment is meted out to the damned in hell before the general resurrection. Punishment for what human beings who once lived on earth did. It's argued that it is unjust for anyone other than the offender to be punished for the offense committed, so it cannot be only the damned souls in hell who are punished, but the individual sinners themselves. Christ, before the general resurrection, harrows hell, delivering the righteous men and women of the Jewish covenant from limbo, and so on. Given the texts of scripture and these common Christian practices and beliefs, Eleanor Stump, who's a friend of uh, many of ours and uh, Father Brent's um, doctoral uh, director, uh, Eleanor Stump goes so far as to assert that corruptionism, the position that human beings can and do die, commits one to obviously heretical views and that attributing it to Aquinas would make of him a heretic. Human beings do not die because their souls exist perpetually and the existence of their souls alone without bodies is sufficient for the perpetual existence as human beings, as the human beings they are, while they await the resurrection of their bodies, should God one day fulfill that promise. Thus resurrection for the survivalists is not a coming back to life for the dead, not the dead rising from the dead, since no human being ever dies. Grandma didn't die, neither did Grandpa or Auntie Jane, or even in my wildest fantasies, magnificent Father Thomas Joseph White or dear mundane Father Dominic Legg. Philosophically, the survivalists appeal, so that's the religious motivation, but there is an argument as to how you could be a survivalist and, and why Thomas should be. But Philosophically, the survivalists appeal to the distinction in contemporary philosophy between the is of identity and the is of material constitution, characteristic of the metaphysics of material constitution. All the survivalist interests here accept, accept, not accept, but accept, they, they agree to, that Aquinas explicitly denies that any human being is identical to his or her soul. Anima mea non est ego, everybody um, grants that and acknowledges it. However, they argue that all that is, is a denial of the is of identity, not the is of constitution. They interpret Aquinas as merely rejecting the platonic view of the soul. But, though Thomas doesn't say anything about the is of constitution, if you take it to be a denial of it, the is of identity, he still can hold on to constitution, whereby the soul is sufficient for the existence of the human substance, just not identical to the human substance. So in any case, the survivalists interpret Aquinas as employing the is of identity in that passage, not the is of constitution. So they claim Aquinas cannot be said to be denying in that text that a human being is constituted by her soul. Having claimed that Aquinas does not deny the is of material constitution, it is then employed by the survivalist to analyze the status of a human being after death, not before death. It's claimed that the human soul alone is sufficient for the existence of the human being, the human substance, the human person. There, I mentioned person. In fact, I think that I put that in there last night when I looked at the title of my talk. The human soul existing in heaven, purgatory, limbo, or hell, it follows that the human 
sorry, the human soul existing in heaven, purgatory, limbo, or hell, it follows that the human being, the human substance, the human person exists in heaven, purgatory, limbo, or hell. Thus, thus, the plainly literal reading of the biblical text and the plainly literal understanding of pious Christian practices of prayer that animate the survivalists can be maintained and Aquinas be saved from heresy. The next section is the death of survivalism, and I'll probably uh, skip um, a good deal here, um, but give you the basic uh, outline. So I want to kill survivalism, not the survivalists many of whom are my friends. Taking Aquinas as a primary theological authority, I want to claim that survivalism is a bad reading of scripture and of the liturgical practices of prayer of God's people. Philosophically, I also want to argue that survivalism is false within the context of a broad commitment to Thomistic Aristotelian natural philosophy and uh, the metaphysics of substance. So I'm just going to summarize here what I will take to be um, Thomas's um, uh, readings of scripture and, and religious practice, uh, rejecting the religious motivation. Um, first, uh, Thomas is well aware of this problem. That is that we do pray to the saints in heaven. Um, we talk about Peter in heaven. We talk about the damned in hell being punished and so on. He, he discusses these things, right? His own practice, and I have yet to find an exception, his own practice is when an objection refers to a saint in heaven, he switches in his response to the soul of the saint. Okay. So um, he does not accept the language, right, that uh, we should be speaking of the saints in heaven. It's the souls of the saints, the souls of the holy. Specific instance of Peter, um, uh, in fact, the objection states his position that the soul of Peter is not Peter and then says, um, and therefore prayer is um, useless. And he says, we pray, he doesn't switch because, oh, it's an objection. Now he's going to disagree with the objection. He says, we pray to the soul of Peter according to what Peter merited in this life. Right? Not what Peter merits in heaven, but what Peter merited in this life. We pray to the soul of Peter. Third thing, um, the uh, idea that the soul is sufficient for the existence, Thomas flatly denies that, that the soul is sufficient in two, at least two instances. One, again, is about an objection involving Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, right? And again, uh, in that context, it's an objection to the resurrection um, that, um, uh, I forget how the objection goes, but he explicitly says in response, the soul of Abraham is not sufficient for the existence of Abraham. And then in the Summa Contra Gentiles, I think book four, uh, chapter 85, when he's talking again about the resurrection, he says the soul is not sufficient for the perpetual existence of the individual um, in heaven. He says the soul, yes, has perpetual existence but it is not sufficient for the perpetual existence of the human individual. He says, that is only true after the resurrection. That after the resurrection, the individual will exist perpetually. It does not exist in that time between death and resurrection. So those are all sort of theological considerations and so on. All right. And then the punishment one, in the Q&A I could go into that one, but um, that's too complicated. 
But there is a hermeneutical principle that Thomas uses here, and he gets it from Augustine, who develops it in his literal uh, his commentaries on the literal interpretation of Genesis. Among all the different hermeneutical principles, <laughs> Augustine says, you cannot give an interpretation of the literal sense of the text, granting that literal, and literal, literal statements uses images and metaphors. Image and metaphor is not excluded in literal, the literal sense for Augustine. But you cannot give an interpretation for the literal sense of a passage in scripture that contradicts what we definitively know about the world. That's why you have to understand what the six days are doing when they use day, even though the sun only begins to exist on the fourth day. So you have to give an interpretation that does not uh, conflict with what we mean by a solar day. Similarly, Thomas accepts that, and that's what he's doing when he goes through these texts about the saints in heaven and so on. Giving an interpretation that does not conflict with what we definitively know about the world. What do we definitively know about the world as much as anything? People die. You can't give an interpretation that conflicts with the fundamental uh, reality that people die. Um, so, hermeneutical principle. Now, so we're skipping pages here just so we can finish. Uh, people call that gappy existence. Thomas believes in gappy existence. Um, all right. Yes. So for these reasons, it is clear that Aquinas is not a survivalist. If we take him seriously as a theological authority, indeed a doctor of the church, then we should not be. But perhaps he, nonetheless, should be a survivalist, and we should follow him down that road. One could say, well, to hell with Aquinas on this particular. He's wrong. Being a heretic, he's in hell. To answer whether he should, or he or we should be survivalists, I'll now turn to what I take to be the philosophical incoherence of survivalism against the background of Aristotelian philosophy of nature and metaphysics. And again, I may have to just summarize so we can have some Q&A. So what I do in this, in this next sec section is develop what I call um, the two-substance problem. Okay? And the two-substance problem for survivalists because they maintain that the human substance survives what appears to be death, there's that substance. We'll call that substance Father Dominic Leg. Okay? And Father Dominic Leg exists in heaven before the resurrection as a human substance. Okay? The problem is, what about this life? And what I do is I go through and develop the idea that there is a second human substance, and now I can't do all my jokes, I name the second human substance in this life, Father Schlomenich Schleg. And Father Schlomenich Schleg um, is the hylomorphic composite of substantial form and matter that lives in this life. There is a hylomorphic composite. And it, as a unity, it is a supposite, it's subsistent, but it's also a substance because it is complete in human nature. Why do I say there are two substances? Well, Father Schlomenich Schleg cannot be identical to Father Dominic Leg. Why? 
Maybe I'll open that up for a test question. Why can't Father Schlomenich's leg be identical to Father Dominic's leg? Well, no, because remember, the survivalists don't, um, don't uh, deny that the individual substance is identical to the soul. They say that the individual substance is um, sufficiently constituted by the individual soul. So that's not the problem. It's not that Father Dominic Legg is identical to a soul and the other isn't. Father Dominic Legg is identical to a human substance after death. Father Dominic Legg is naturally immortal. Father Schlomenich Schlegg is naturally mortal. They do not have the same properties, and so they cannot be identical. Okay. So that means in this life, not just Father Dominic Legg and Father Schlomenich Schlegg, with regard to each one of you, and I don't know which of you I'm talking to, there's always two in this life. The individual composite of substantial form and body that undoubtedly corrupts the remains of which we put in coffins. Right? That individual substance ceases to exist. There's nothing more clear in Aristotelian, Thomistic Aristotelian natural philosophy. There's an interesting question about Christ and what the case was with Christ in death. But bracketing Christ, an individual unity of substantial form and matter, or soul and body, is an individual substance of the appropriate nature. And that corrupts, is not naturally immortal, is brought to ruin. And so Father Schlomenich Schlegg is naturally mortal and ceases to exist. Okay. Now you might say, okay, so what? Philosophers say weird things. And one of the things I appreciate is how many people so far this morning have said, well, look, I'm not a philosopher. And I want to say, stop bragging. Um, <laughs> why should we care? So... We see one, but there are two human substances there. The one that survives, and I don't even want to say survives death because it doesn't die, and the one that does die. Why should we care about that? A broader point in Thomistic Aristotelian natural philosophy Two corporeal substances cannot exist at the same time and in the same place. The bodily features, the bodily character of a corporeal substance completely fills the space within which it exists. So we can't have two. And again, um, getting back to um, all these things start to come out when you look at what the way Thomas sort of asks questions about Christ between the passion and the resurrection. It's an interesting question that he raises, I think, in the quod libitals. Could Christ have two human natures? Right? And that wouldn't they, I mean, there's a question as to whether or not Christ has an individual human nature, which is an individual man. 
that Christ assumed an individual man? And his answer to that is no, again, for theological reasons. He assumed a human nature, but the human nature is taken up into the individuality of the more perfect divine supposite. And that's why Christ's human nature does not constitute an individual man. The individual is Christ, one person, two natures. That's for these, that's against Nestorianism, I believe. But these interesting questions come up then, well, could Christ have two natures? And Thomas actually grants that. And if I remember the way he does it, he says, and then Christ would have two bodies. But of course, the two bodies wouldn't be in one place because bodies exclude one another from being in, distinct bodies exclude one another from being in the same place. Okay. So that's not a theological, religious reason for rejecting survivalism. That's a philosophical argument, and it's much more complicated in the paper and the talk. But the two-substance problem is not a problem after death. Why? Because Father Shlomonik Schleg no longer exists. You've just got Father Dominic Leg. But it rises again, so to speak. I did have to tell that joke, sorry. In the resurrection. Because now what did die rises from the dead. Father Shlomonik Schleg lives again with Father Dominic Leg in the same place, at the same time, whatever place that is. Okay. And it isn't that a glorified body can exist in the same place at the same time with another glorified body. Glory does not change that. One other thing about that, and then I want to finish with a reflection on um, the tears of Christ. Um, you also have the problem of individuating acts. Acts are individuated by agents. So, who is sitting? Father Dominic Leg or Father Shlomonik Schleg? There have to be two acts of sitting in that spot, at that place. That's ruled out by what Thomas has to say about angels who are not circumscribed by a space but are present at a space. You can only have one angel dancing on the head of a pin. It's not the actual question that's asked, but that it does follow from that. You can only have one agent at a place unless you're talking about God and then created agents. Okay. So you have the problem of the individuation of, of uh, agents. All right. So skipping ahead. Sorry that I, I did that, but I, I got away from, I, this got away from me when I was working on it. So uh, as I say, I want to finish with um, the tears of Christ. So I'd like to turn now briefly to the tears of Christ. Lazarus died, and Jesus wept over his death. Despite Christ's using sleep several times to describe Lazarus, he's using an Old Testament metaphor or image for death. That Christ is using a metaphor is made abundantly clear by the very words of Christ himself, concerned that the thick-headed apostles do not understand his meaning. 
The gospel says, so the disciples said to him, Master, if he is asleep, he will be saved. But Jesus was talking about his death. Well, they thought he meant ordinary sleep. So then Jesus said to them clearly, Lazarus has died. Commenting on Martha having said that taking away the stone from the grave will expose them to the odor of Lazarus's corpse, lying dead in the tomb for four days, Aquinas writes, this was done to show the truth of the miracle of being raised from the dead as his members were already beginning to break apart by rotting. Lazarus is interitas, or sorry, interitus, interred, brought to ruin, destroyed, extinct, through the corruption of the living body that he was. Notice that throughout the gospel passage, the name Lazarus is applied by synecdoche to the dead body lying in the tomb. Indeed, Aquinas looking to give the literal sense of the text that says, he, Jesus, cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. Aquinas considers that one might think Christ cried out in a loud voice as if calling from a long way away to the soul that is not in the tomb. So Christ is calling out to the soul, which is way far away. Right? And that's why he's yelling loudly. The la the in that case, the name Lazarus would then be taken to apply to the soul, or according to our survivalists, the human substance Lazarus surviving death constituted by his soul off in the happy lands. But Thomas rejects that reading for what he describes as a, quote, better explanation of the literal sense, namely that the voice of Christ is said to be loud in virtue of the magnitude of his power. For his power was such that it roused Lazarus from the dead, who had been dead for four days. Thomas goes on immediately to explain that Christ uses the proper name Lazarus of the dead body, because the power of Christ's voice was such that were he not to have used Lazarus's own name, all who have died would have risen from the dead, been brought back, that is, from ruin, and not just Lazarus. So he calls to the body, Lazarus, come out, so that only Lazarus comes out. You can imagine what the people around would have been freaked out, you know, like, come out, and everybody in the graveyard, whoosh, you know. Oh, Jane. So for Thomas, at least, we see here that if a proper name is going to be used after the death of the ordinary bearer of the proper name, it is appropriately used of the corpse, the dead body, rather than some entity that is either identical to the soul or constituted by the soul alone, an entity that returns to the corpse. The corpse that is roused from the dead is Lazarus. Lazarus died. Christ, through his power, after first giving praise to the Father, called out to the corpse in the tomb, Lazarus, come out, not Lazarus, come back, as if calling to his soul or something else from afar. And in calling out the corpse, Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, as he will all of us, saints and sinners alike, the blessed and the damned. Our hope for immortality does not rest with the immortality of the soul. It rests in the power, and thus misericordia, 
of Christ who is God. If that's heresy, then Aquinas is a heretic, and so probably am I. Thank you. I want to push back a little bit on corruptionism. Uh, so it seems really, this seems like something that would be wrong to do. So let's say I commit a horrendous crime, and yet most of my body is destroyed except for my hand. It would be really weird for the judge to be, okay, punish the hand. That's a part of you that survives. Punish that. We need some sort of just dessert. That seems like the wrong thing for the judge to say. How is it different for the corruptionist to say, oh, there's a part of me that survives, namely my soul, punish that, that's going to receive some sort of punishment or, you know, maybe some sort of reward immediately after I die. Why is that a more appropriate thing to reward or to punish after my death as opposed to, say, like my hand or something like that? Well, um, that's a good question, and that's precisely the punishment objection, something okay. like it. Um, so I've thought a lot about this, and I've got some stuff in here about it, but I'm not sure that um, anyone will be finally convinced by this, right? But, you know, you can only hope for so much. Um, first, the objection, I think, oftentimes kinds of trades on an ambiguity where we think of the soul as some other being than us, right? And that kind of gets into the question of what being does the soul have, right? It remains my soul, right? It's not another person, right? Now, Daniel DeHaan has some, uh, I wasn't going to address Daniel's position on this because it's, I think, more complicated. And if I, and I think I disagree with it if, if it's not just a verbal disagreement. But, uh, but that's for another, another time. Uh, so we're sort of like, well, something other than me is being punished, right? Well, it's certainly not identical to me. But it's not another person being punished. That's one point, right? Same thing with beatitude. It doesn't have to be punishment, right? Um, but we, I think we have to avoid, both for a theological reason, and then actually I've got an example, thinking, um, and the theological point is, thinking that it is inappropriate for something other than me to be punished for what I have done. Right? Things are, of course, complicated here, right? But you deserve death because of something someone did that was not you, right? So you are subject to that in terms of a complicated theology of original sin and so on. So why should you be punished for what they did? Okay, so I don't want to get into the metaphysics of that and so on. Christ is not, strictly speaking, punished for our sins. But he bears the punishment of our sins. That's at least Aquinas's um, substitutional atonement, right? So you, provided you aren't damned, will not be punished for the sin against God. You will be punished, or your soul in purgatory will be punished for the temporal remnants of justice that still need to be worked out um, before beatitude, right? But the temporal punishment, or sorry, the eternal punishment uh, for those who die in a state of grace, is not exacted upon them. It is exacted, not as punishment, but nonetheless, it is exacted upon Christ in the Passion. So something else than us can bear the punishment that we deserve. That's 
the atonement. Third, and this is a kind of bodily analogy since you used the hand. Suppose, um, I never do this because my mother-in-law was an emergency room nurse, but suppose I put on my driver's license that I'll be an organ donor, okay? My mother-in-law was an emergency room nurse. She said, I never saw it done, but I don't trust the people I work with. <laughs> but I put on there that uh, my kidney could be, one of my kidneys could be given to someone upon my death, provided it's suitable. Now that's an act of sacrifice, okay? Although it's a sacrifice that takes place after I die. But suppose in the resurrection, Christ wanting to acknowledge, and God wanting to acknowledge that sacrificial act, raises me from the dead, but leaves that kidney absent, much like a scar that might be gotten as a result of some sacrificial act, or the wounds of Christ. Right? Now, again, Christ is different here. Um, but I rise from the dead without a kidney. I think it would be true to say, right, my kidney has been removed though there is no time at which I was having my kidney removed. Similarly, with regard to the punishment, why, uh, Thomas actually says something close to this. It's in virtue of our intellect and will that we sin, primarily our will, right? And so even if we were not, he doesn't say this part, but even if we were, that's why he thinks it's appropriate for the punishment to be born by intellect and will, or the soul that has our intellect and will. It's my intellect and my will that are being punished. Oh, so it will be the case in the resurrection. You have to do the temporal here because the damned, it's eternal. I will have been, or sorry, my intellect and will will have borne punishment or been punished. Though that at a certain time, I was not being punished while they were being punished. It belongs to me because it's my soul. It's m that punishment applies to me because it's my soul. Just like I'm missing my kidney. Or not just like, because it's in that analogy. So three responses there. It seems like the survivalists could respond like this. They could say that- Are you a survivalist? I always hate it when people say, well, someone could say, I want to say, what do you no, say? No, I want to hear what you're going to say. I'm not going to, I, I'm, <laughs> from a, like a, a Lockean perspective, personhood is going to be psychological identity or something like that. So they could say, That's Father Shlomnik Schleg is actually immortal and the change that happens at death is really only an accidental change. They just kind of, you know, lose the body, but it's not really that big a deal because there's continuity. How would you respond to that if they just say basically death is an accidental change, not a substantial change, so you don't have this two-substance problem like you outlined? Yeah, I mean, what I would say is then you've abandoned the Thomistic Aristotelian natural philosophy of substance, which has some things to say for it, right? Um, metaphysics zeta, what is a substance, focuses upon hylomorphic substance in particular. Um, person, right? What's going on there is you say, well, one, we have an equivocation on person, which is partially why I didn't want to talk about persons. For Thomas, a person is an individual substance of a rational nature. It's not a psychological criterion in the Lockean sense, right? So if somebody says, and there's another notion you could use, just a thinking thing, right? Well, the soul is a thinking thing, right? Of course, thing does a lot of work there, right? You want to say, what kind of thinking thing, right? 
Um, that's a, that would be a Cartesian criterion of person, right? So you can always pick a metaphysics to make your view work. You want to say, is there any other reason for choosing that metaphysics? And I want to say in those particular contexts, they're not particularly good reasons for choosing it. Um, the Lockean one is kind of interesting. There's a paper from about 30 years ago by Mark Johnston at Princeton. And it's a question on uh, personal identity in that kind of Lockean sense. So it has the idea, the brain transfer, for example, or just the memory transfer, the thought transfer. If there was a way of downloading your thoughts and memories onto a chip and then uploading them into another brain, or if you transplanted a brain into another body, who's the person, what's the person, and so on. And um, I can try, I can find the title for you, but it's a marvelous paper because what it does basically say is there's no metaphysics really going on here because it's all dependent on how you set up the thought experiment. If you set up the thought experiment this way, you'll say that identity goes with the brain. If you th set up the thought experiment just slightly, tweak it, you'll say identity goes with the body. And then tweak it again and you'll just say it goes with the chip that you downloaded, right? And, it, and so it's sort of like, well, it's just up to you which one you choose here. And his deeper point, though, is that if that's the case, then it's not grounded in any substantive, and I don't mean Aristotelian, but substantive metaphysical commitments, right? It's like thought experiments detached from, from serious metaphysics. So what I would say is, yeah, you can give up Aristotelian substance. There's a lot you're going to be giving up just to say that you survived death. Hello. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, oh, there you go. I had uh, two questions. One is, um, I was wondering if you could tell us um, whether whether um, the survivalists had any uh, specific heresy in mind that they think St. Thomas is committed to. And the second one is, um, we learned from the great uh, Father Dominic <laughs> that uh, the soul depends uh, for, uh, um, on the matter, the human soul, for its individuation um, in the beginning, but what is it, not in the end, um, and that the, um, that the essay of the soul is the, is the same essay as the composite substance, uh, and so the soul continues, so that very same essay continues, so couldn't the survivalist say, wasn't that enough, like there you go, you have the, you have the continuity of being, you know, Maybe we don't want to call it a person, but you know, there's there's that kind of. So maybe is there like a just a disagreement in words or? I don't think it's a disagreement in words, but to the first, um, I'll say this in all charity and affection for Eleanor Stump, because she is a wonderful person, and and lots of people here love her and are friends with her, and I certainly um, consider her a friend. But Eleanor has this way of. Um, suggesting that a heresy is something that disagrees with what she thinks. Um, you will not find, quite the contrary, you will not find, if what we mean by a heresy is something that has been defined by the church in its authoritative role um, to teach what has been revealed in various levels of authority, exercise of authority, including councils, including, you will not find that heresy defined. Um, you will find a lot about death, including some statements about what death consists in and what resurrection consists in. Not a lot, but you will find it, right? 
Um, you won't find something as explicit as Peter does not exist in heaven after death until the resurrection. But there are teachings on sin, on death, on what Christ achieved, on what death for Christ consists in. Right? Because Christ does not cease to exist with death. That's how Christ differs from us. But he really dies because of the corruption of the unity of soul and body in him. Though his body remains um, unified with his divine supposite, and his soul remains unified with the divine supposite because of the corruption, you have to say Christ really died. What does that consist in? And that's where the doctrine takes these lines. Some people would say, well, the church doesn't really commit to Aristotelian stuff. We don't have to have that argument. But the doctrines about this are that the unity of soul and body in Christ ceased. So Christ really died, though he did not cease to exist. The way in which an individual human being who is not divine ceases to exist upon the corruption of soul and body. So that, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the heresy. The essay point, quick point on that. Um, you have to be careful not to reify, this is one of our favorite things, reify every principle, right? So when you talk about the essay of um, Father Dominic, that's not a thing, right? It's the actuality of his being human, okay? St. Thomas says um, for living things, essay est vivere, to be is to live. The essay is the living, right? Um, so what you don't want to think is, well, wait a minute. I mean, so if, if he has essay and the soul has essay, then essay is the real thing. And it's just something that kind of is associated with the soul and associated with the living substance, right? And so it doesn't really matter. It's just a matter of words. No. Um, these are principles of substance. But the fundamental thing for any Aristotelian is always substance. Right? That's why the soul is not a substance. It's a subsistent. And Thomas actually denies. People are like, well, what, what category is it in? Right? It's a being, right? It's a thing. What category is it in? And Thomas explicitly denies that the soul is in the category of substance. It's in no category, because not everything's in a category. The chair's not in a category. Neither is the soul. The soul is related to the category of substance as a principle of substance, but not a substance. Similarly with essay. Okay, real quick. Um, so I think um, 76, Article 1, um, on the relation of the body to the soul and the connection of it. Um, Aquinas seems to strongly affirm that there is the specific soul in human beings, which is only, there's only one um, individual of that species. You couldn't have a material um, multiplication just through matter itself, right? I wanted to confirm really from terminological standpoints, and you were talking about, I think, Article 2 of 75 about subsistence as the human soul subsistent. If material form there just means a form which could be multiplied by matter. Second, um, Father uh, Brent was saying in passing um, that each human being couldn't have a specific soul because you would just get two. You wouldn't have a common human nature. But I don't see how that follows. You would just have one part of the human specific soul, which is common to all humanity, right? The other part, which specifies you as the individual. I don't know if he was saying that seriously, if I misinterpreted him. But that was, you know, um, a talk on more sociological things as opposed to philosophy. He was talking there. Thank you. Yeah, um, I think I lost sight of the first. The first point. The yeah. First point. Um, 
merely if material form is defined to be a form which can be multiplied oh. by matter. Is that what he means in um, objection one of Article 2 of 75? It's, it's, and in fact, um, that's in really important for understanding question 75, Article 2. And then the subsequent article, which is whether the souls of animals are subsistent. So when he talks about a material form, you want to say, well, what other kinds of forms are there? Right? Form isn't matter, so every, every form is material, right? Um, Thomas uses material in a number of different ways. And so what he means by material form there is um, in the ordinary accept acceptation, that would be the forms of substances, of corporeal substances. Okay? Um, he thinks it takes a certain extension of the, of the word form by analogy, to, for instance, to call angels forms. Right, because he thinks the very notion of a form is the actuality of a corporeal thing. But he says, well, an angel would be like a, a form without any matter, right? So it's an analogy. And so by material form there, yes, he generally means the substantial forms of things that are corporeal. The human soul presents a particular problem, right? That is that because it's subsistent, he's no longer going to call it simply a material form. In fact, one of the distinctions he makes is the difference between subsistent things is they exist per se. But substances exist per se and in se. So the hand does not exist in se. It exists per se through its operation but, or the potentiality for its operation. But it exists in a body, though not as in a subject. So it doesn't exist in se. 